Volume One, Chapter One of Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence, read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in March two thousand and eight. Volume One, Chapter One, Part Two, The Will. After a while, Elsie started up from the sofa. Jane said she, "If we were to marry, it would put an end to all this perplexity. It was strange that Uncle put in the clause forbidding us to marry that man. Neither of us would demean ourselves so much, but Uncle disliked the marriage of near relatives." How strange that so little is said about the mother! I could not look at him, but you did. Is he like his father? My uncle was a very handsome man. I fancy this man is plain. I see little or no likeness to my uncle, but he is by no means plain-looking. Will he get into society? Do they consider such people legitimate? The marriage was irregular but legal," said Jane. I see now the cause my uncle had to dislike the Scotch marriage law. He must have been made very miserable from some unguarded words spoken or written. But this does not prevent his son from taking the position of a legitimate heir. He is quiet and unassuming, and will take a very good place in society. It was well," said Elsie with a faint laugh, "that this clause was inserted, for you seem to be in some danger. Not at all. But we were thrown together in very extraordinary circumstances, and I could not help feeling for his position as he felt for ours. Nor could I help asking for advice from him. I agree with my uncle about cousins. He was right there, as he always used to be. At least he brought me up to think like him, and I can scarcely believe that what he has done now is wrong. But Jane, setting this cousin out of the way, what do you think of William Dalzell? I was just thinking of him when you spoke," said Jane resolutely. Uncle must have had him in his mind when he mentioned fortune hunters in his will, for he never seemed to like him coming here so often. And just six weeks ago I had been going out riding with him every day. You said you were not well and would not accompany us. I suppose I was giving him what people consider a great deal of encouragement. If my uncle had said plainly that he disapproved of the intimacy, I wonder if I would have given it up. Perhaps not. One does not like to be dictated to. It appeared to myself so strange that he should prefer me to you, and now I recollect that my uncle must have paid his last visit to Edinburgh just before he made his will, and there he would see this young man filling his place in the world so well, while I was behaving so foolishly. The contrast must have struck him, and he certainly has put an end to everything between Mr. Dalzell and myself. Oh, Jane, he is no fortune hunter. This will make no change. If you marry him, you must take me home with you and tell him it is what I deserve for standing his friend so well. My dearest Elsie, you have talked a great deal about Mr. Dalzell, and I have rather foolishly listened to it. But that must be stopped now. I know he is poor. He thought to better himself by a wealthy marriage, and perhaps if I had been left now with twenty thousand pounds, with nothing to do and nothing to think of, his agreeable qualities—well, you own he has agreeable qualities. Yes, I have always owned it. They might have induced me to marry him, and you, as the possessor of other twenty thousand pounds, would have been a most welcome inmate of our house until you chose for yourself your own home. But now, Elsie, I know William Dalzell is not the man to encumber himself with a penniless wife and a penniless sister-in-law. He is not mercenary. I am sure he is not," said Elsie with animation. Perhaps he is not positively mercenary, but after all, am I worthy of the sacrifice? Look at me, Elsie. Even your sisterly partiality cannot make a beauty of me. My turn of mind is not suited to his. I have always felt that, and above all, I am not very fond of him. Not very, no. I have liked him a good deal, but now in this crisis, when we have to begin life in earnest, when I am puzzling myself how to find food and clothing and shelter for you and me, I feel as if Mr. Dalzell's past attentions belonged to another world altogether. So I am putting them aside completely. Ah,、oh, but Jane, only listen to me. If he were to come now and lay himself and all that he has at your feet, that would prove that he was no fortune hunter, but a real, true lover, as I always believed him to be. He will not do it," 
said Jane quietly, and now she began to make some memoranda. "'We have no ornaments, Elsie,' said she, sadly. "'No. I never heard you regret the want of them before. I should like to have something to sell. Amelia Chalmers has two hundred pounds worth of jewellery, most of it left by her aunt. If we had so much, we might convert it into money, and might stock a little shop.' "'A shop!' said Elsie, shuddering. "'Why not?' One is more independent keeping a shop than in a governess's situation, and there my business knowledge would be of use. It is wrong and absurd to have a terror of a shop. I cannot help feeling a great repugnance of shopkeeping. Then would you rather be a governess, supposing you were capable? Oh, Jane, that is such a hard life! I should be separated from you. And then one is worried by the children, and snubbed by the parents, sneered at by servants, and ignored by visitors. Then dressmaking. You work beautifully. The late hours, the close rooms. Do you think I could stand it?" "'I am a little afraid for you,' said Jane, thoughtfully. "'What would you like to do?' "'Why, I have never thought of doing anything but being with you, working a little, reading a little, going out a little, and having nobody over me but you, my own darling sister. It stuns me to be told that I must go to work for a livelihood. I hope we may be able to live together as you hoped, eventually, but in the meantime we must both put our shoulders to the wheel. "'Have we no friends who would give us a home, at least for a while, till we get accustomed to the thought of hard work?' said Elsie. "'We have no relations, and we have made but few friends. I fear no one would come forward to help us now that we need help so much. It is a pity that my uncle kept us so much to himself, and that we were so fully occupied with our own home duties that we had little or no time for society. Now we have no capital for a start, and no friends to help us on, only our little talents and our education—a small stock in trade, I fear.' In the course of the afternoon, the man-servant, James, announced that Mr. Dalzell was below, and that he sent his compliments and wished to know how the young ladies were. It was not the first visit since Mr. Hogarth's death. He had paid a visit of condolence on the following day, and had never been so affectionate or impressive in his manner to Jane as on that occasion. "'Show Mr. Dalzell upstairs, James,' said Jane. "'I think I should like to see him.' The man looked somewhat intelligent, and obeyed. "'I cannot see anybody. I am not fit to be seen,' said Elsie, retreating in haste from the room. "'And indeed, Jane, I wonder at you wishing to see him so soon after this dreadful news.' "'He has been at the funeral, I suppose. It is very proper of him to inquire for us, and very imperative that we should understand each other. The sooner the better. But do not stay if you do not like. I should prefer to see him alone.' Mr. Dalzell was shown into the darkened drawing-room, where he was some time in discovering that Miss Melville was alone. A few of the kind commonplaces which had been so successful on his previous visit—remarks on the loss she had sustained, on the excellent character of her deceased uncle, and on the necessity of bearing the blow with fortitude, which her strong mind was quite capable of—were made by Mr. Dalzell in unconsciousness that they fell very differently on Jane's ears now. Jane asked for his mother, and heard that she was very well, and sent her kindest regards and condolences, and hoped that the Mrs. Melville would be able to see her on the following day. "'Were there many people at the funeral?' asked Jane. Oh, yes, a great many. Mr. Hogarth was so extensively known, and so much respected. Were there any strangers? Several, to me, said Dorsal. Did you observe no one in particular? Yes, a gentleman from Edinburgh, said to be a protégé of your uncle's, who took a rather prominent place on account of there being no male relative surviving. Have you heard, said Jane, with an effort, have you heard anything of the will? Nothing whatever. Did not think it proper or delicate to inquire, though I saw Mr. Macfarlane after it had been read. It is a matter of no consequence to me how Mr. Hogarth has left his property. My feelings will be quite the same towards—'Stop,' said Jane. "'My uncle has left his entire fortune to this stranger from Edinburgh, who is his son by a private marriage. Elsie and I have had an education, and must make the best we can of it.' 
"'Miss Melville, this is incredible, quite incredible. You are merely trying me. Mr. Hogarth was incapable of such madness and injustice. It is not treating me well to play upon me this way. In proof of what I say, here is a certified copy of the will, the final will, executed six weeks ago, when, as you know, my uncle was perfectly well both in body and mind. It is incontestable.' The bewildered young man tried to read the paper put into his hand, but he could not follow the written words. Jane's sad face and her manner convinced him, however, that she was telling him the truth. "'Now,' said Jane kindly, "'you have talked a great deal of nonsense to me when my position was very different, but I am quite aware that things are altogether changed. I will not feel at all hurt or angry about it. We part perfectly good friends. But you cannot afford to marry a wife without money, and I should be sorry to be a burden to any man.' William Dalzell looked at the girl he had fancied himself in love with for the last few months, and felt that his love had not been of a very deep or absorbing character. If the two girls had been equal favourites of their uncles, his choice would have fallen on Elsie, who was prettier, more elegant, more yielding, and, as he thought, more affectionate. Her impulsive and confiding manner, her little enthusiasms, her blunders, were to him more charming than Jane's steady good sense and calm temper. Jane never wanted advice or assistance. She was too independent in mind, and too robust in body, to care much about little attentions, though she had become accustomed to his in the course of time, and as there was no other person to compare him with, had allowed herself to think a good deal of him. Mr. Hogarth had always shown so marked a preference for Jane, and had so often expressed displeasure and impatience at Elsie's deficiencies. His property, not being entailed, was entirely at his own disposal, so that it was probable that Jane would be left the larger share of it, while if he made love to Alice it was quite possible that she would be disinherited altogether, for he knew that he was not a favourite with the old gentleman. He did not think that anything could shake Mr. Hogarth's confidence in Jane, and he had been very careful in feeling his ground sure before he made a formal proposal. He had tried to persuade himself that Jane's face was charming, though not regularly handsome. So it was to some people, but he had not eyes to see the charm. Her figure was undeniably fine, her temper good, her principles to be depended on. Her education had been peculiar, and singularly secular. His mother had felt a little shocked at her want of religion. But then Mr. Hogarth was very odd, and when she was married she would see things differently. And on the whole Mrs. Dalzell felt that her handsome son had chosen with great prudence and good sense in fixing his attentions upon the elder and the favourite niece. His small property was heavily encumbered, and such a marriage would make him hold up his head again in the country. Mrs. Dalzell's attentions to Jane had been nearly as assiduous as her son's, and to the motherless girl they were quite as welcome. She had shown so much affection for Alice, too, that both sisters had been very much captivated with her. William Dalzell felt Jane's kindly-meant speech as a sort of reproach. He would have preferred to make a speech himself, and to have seen her more agitated. Though he had never thought himself very much in love, he believed he had inspired a strong love, and that it would be very hard for Jane to give him up. But things were completely taken out of his hands. She did not even now, in the first pain of parting, dream of breaking her heart. She was his superior, painfully his superior, and he did not like it. "'You are quite right, Miss Melville,' said he. "'What you say is quite true. I am involved and embarrassed, and could not offer you anything worth having.' "'And I will make my own way in the world,' said Jane. "'And, William Dalzell, do not be hurt if I give you one friendly piece of advice on parting. Try to make your own way in the world, too. Shake yourself clear of your own embarrassments by your own industry.' a far better way than by marrying a rich wife." She looked very kindly at the young man as she spoke, but he did not take the advice in the friendly spirit in which it was given. He answered rather shortly that he dared to say he would do as well as other people, and then began to ask what she knew about the heir, if she had ever seen him before, or heard Mr. Hogarth speak of him. She answered, "'No, never. But I cannot answer questions. I cannot converse rationally any longer. 
"'You had better go away, Mr. Dorsal, and let me have a little rest, for I am rather weary.' The young gentleman stumbled downstairs, and rode home, ruminating over the downfall of all his cherished expectations, while Jane said to herself, "'It is over, and it is better so. He really is a smaller character than I thought he was.'" End of Volume 1, Chapter 1 Part 2 This recording is in the public domain.